Welcome back to another episode of the Audience Podcast. It's the number one show for podcasters on their journey to get better at podcasting. Hey, before we continue, it's the holiday season, and I'd love nothing more than if you could take a quick moment and leave us a review on iTunes. You're a podcaster, at least I hope so. You know what the feeling of gratitude, well, feels like. I love it if you could just take a moment and drop us that five-star review in iTunes or leave a comment. Look, I'm not saying that my boss, Craig, you know, the other co-host here, takes us into account when he gives me my yearly review, but, well, maybe he does. So please go ahead and leave the audience podcast a five-star review on iTunes. So let's say you're a new podcaster and you're looking to get better at editing, spotting industry trends, and creating a show that makes an impact within the genre of your content. Then let's just say I could put you in a room with a guy that has edited a podcast for tech journalists like Peter Kafka or Kara Swisher, Rico Decode, that won Podcast of the Year by Adweek in 2019. Well, hold on to your microphones because today I'm interviewing Eric Johnson, the editor who did all of the above and more to chat about his latest venture, bumblecast.fm. He's helping you achieve your podcasting goals, whether you're a solo creator, a nonprofit, a big business, and everything in between. There's a ton here, and I really hope you enjoy it. Oh, and if today's lesson was worth your time, don't forget about that review. Okay, let's get into the audience episode. What does this whole production thing look like from your 50,000 foot view? There's a lot of listeners here that are hobbyists. They're trying to get their podcast off the ground, but you've done it big time. You've been on the big stage producing some of the world's most popular shows. What does this production look like for you versus, you know, the guy at home with their laptop trying to just use audacity? <laughs> like what goes into producing a show at your level versus maybe like say the hobbyist? Yeah, well, as you mentioned, you know, a foundational principle of Bumblecast is this idea, starting a podcast is easy, making a podcast is hard. I think there's a lot of unfortunate misinformation that's out there that's targeted at amateur and hobbyist podcasters, folks who have a vested interest in convincing them that, oh, it's, you know, you just got to upload an MP3, just just pay us a couple dollars a month to host your audio. The downloads were rolling, everything will be great. Congratulations, you're a podcaster. And, you know, technically, yes, once you've uploaded uh, some MP3 to an RSS file, I guess technically you are. But the whole idea of the company is that everyone needs help. So whether you're an individual creator or you are a, a college or a university or you're a big business, everyone down the line needs help in some way or another because making a show is a lot of work. It's a lot more work than people initially assume. To the second part of your question about the differences between you know being a, a, a big podcast versus a small one, there are major differences. So to take pull from my own history, you know the show that I produced for the past five years, Rico Decode with Kara Swisher. Kara already had a huge existing fan base. She was a, is a celebrity journalist, right? And so that brings a lot of that makes it a lot easier to get started. To start, you're not really starting from zero. She had tons of followers online, tons of followers on Twitter, right? She had um, a really passionate, engaged fan base already. So convincing those people to listen to a Kara Swisher podcast is relatively easier. Now, that being said, it took us many years to build Recode Decode into the show that it was. As I mentioned, as you mentioned, rather, you know, the show won Palcast of the Year in 2019. And really, I would say we didn't, we started the show in 2015. I don't think we really hit our stride until 2018. 
2018. That was the year that we had Mark Zuckerberg on and Elon Musk, and really some of my favorite episodes of the entire run of the show. That was when it, when everything really clicked into place as to, you know, so e even a big show like that with a really talented, already popular host like that, it took time and a lot of work to get to that place where we were like completely happy with, you know, with the pace that we were going and the types of guests we were getting, right? And so you think about someone who's an independent creator, right, who is starting without an entrenched, engaged audience from the beginning, it's even harder for them. And that's my whole philosophy is that if you are willing and able to put in the time and you're willing to ask for help when you need it, you can get there, you can build up to a point where the podcast is, turns into something that's really successful and thriving and has that great audience, but it's not something that happens automatically. That part of it is not easy. Yeah, and one of the things that, uh, the two most popular questions that I get here at Castos is, which microphone should I buy? And which editing app should I be using to make my sound better, right? Two things that are just very non-existent to the success of a show. I mean, long-term success, yes, we want to make it sound great. You want to do sound effects. How do you think you're going to handle that? Or how would you handle that question if somebody came knocking on Bubblecast door and said, hey, I want to start a podcast, and they were really fixated on the hardware, the software, and really struggling with, hey, it's, it's about the content here. Wait, so you're telling me if I don't, if I buy uh, Joe Rogan's microphone, Spotify's not going to automatically <laughs> give me $100 million? Yeah. No, I think if someone, um, if they're coming from, you know, kind of a more independent, a lower budget uh, perspective, which is what most podcasters are, most of us are kind of doing this thing on our own or as side projects. I'd say there's actually a lot of really good low cost USB microphones, and that's the range you should be aiming at. Um, I think Transom has a really good guide to these. There's lots of good guides online if you just search for USB microphones. The general advice that I give is, I agree with you on this, Matt, is that you shouldn't obsess too much over your audio quality as the ultimate determinant of the podcast. The content is really the most important thing, is making sure that you have the material, you have the personality, you have the access to guests if you need them, right? Those things are so much more important. And I think so long as the audio sounds good enough, 95% of your audience will not care. Maybe there'll be 5% of audiophiles out there who would be like, oh, well, this would be better if they were using a Rodecaster Pro or whatever. But, you know, most listeners are not going to turn your show off so long as it's not actively hurting their ears. Yeah, I mean, one of the things uh, I say, so I, again, I just, I mirror everything that you say to a lot of our customers, but there's a, there's a point where, yeah, you, you do have to invest in, in it. There's a lot of people in, I don't know, let's say the business slash marketing space of podcasting where it's sort of like, like almost like a trophy, like, Hey, I, I, I didn't invest a nickel in this podcast and I'm getting hundreds or thousands of downloads per episode. Yet when I tune into those types of episodes, they're just using like their Mac internal microphone. And then they're like banging on the desk and they're in a 14 foot ceiling room. And I'm like, I, I can't even listen to this anymore. Hey, kudos to you on your success, but I, I can't stay committed to this show if it audibly hurts my ears. So investing like $7,500 will get you a fantastic microphone, which almost almost sounds like Joe Rogan at the end of the day, you know, if that's the kind of audio quality that you're getting to. 
And to your point, though, also those best practices about making sure you're recording in a good room, that you're not wearing. Uh, we've had uh, I've had many experiences with guests who are wearing jewelry that clanks around on their wrists or on their neck. You're not banging the table, at least not too much, unless it's a really important point. There's uh, certainly a lot of best practices about having good audio quality, but people do get hung up on the on the equipment uh, over much. Is there a trend in podcasting categories or show types where you're just like, oh, not this again? Like somebody <laughs> says, I want to, I want to launch a show, and it's it's just another interview show. No pun lost in the fact that we're having an interview <laughs> show right now. But is there just a thing you're like, oh god, this again? Well, first of all, I love interview shows. I think that interviews are an endlessly uh, mutable genre. I don't think that there's a glut of those any more than there's a glut of novels. I think it's such a broad genre that uh, it'd be be silly to try and police that. But to your your larger question, personally, I have my personal podcast taste of the stuff that I like. Bumblecast will help people make any type of podcast they want. So that's our policy is you come to us with an idea, we will do whatever we can to help you achieve your goals. My personal taste, however, I have always been a little bit disturbed, at the very least perplexed by true crime. I'm not the biggest fan of turning people's suffering and or death and or violence into entertainment. And I know there are certainly better examples and worse examples of that. I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. There are many true crime podcasts that are sensitive and that are, you know, not over sensationalizing, over entertainmentizing. That's not a word, but you know, you know what I mean? They're not cheapening the real events, but there are some that do. And that always makes me feel a little bit icky. And so whenever I see there's an announcement for a new true crime podcast, Part of me is always like a little bit, uh, which which type is it? Which one of is it, is it going to be one of the good ones, one of the bad ones? You know. Yeah. Did you tune into Crime Town when they covered Providence? Yeah, I did. I loved the first season of Crime Town. Yeah, it was, it was, and I think that's sort of the allure. I mean, obviously, there's the allure of the of the crime, and then like the the storytelling and the illustration of what happened. But then it's one of those things as a listener, as a as a content consumer, you're like, oh yeah, like I know all the Federal Hill, like I know all these places in in Providence. So you're it kind of connects you that way. And I can't believe that happened there like 30 years ago or 40 years ago, whenever it happened. So I think there's a little bit of that as well. How do you balance, how will you balance, or how are you balancing now, that time aspect? A client comes to you and they say, we want to do a podcast, and you're like, okay, it's going to be 12 episodes, it's going to be 50 episodes. How do you get them to balance the time, the investment to reach a particular goal that they're after through a podcast? So my general advice, let's assume again, we're still talking about an independent person who is starting from approximately zero, right? They're not an addition, they don't already have an engaged audience. My advice is to basically plan, think in terms of like a pilot season. Now, it may be that the show goes well enough that you don't actually have seasons, that you keep, you start doing it and you just keep on doing it indefinitely. But mentally, I tell people in the planning phase, in the show development phase, to think in, you know, 10 week or 12 week segments and think about what can I achieve in this amount of time? And with the understanding that, you know, podcasting is a is a long game, that this is not something that will necessarily turn go viral overnight. We should st- I should stop saying go viral. That, that phrase no longer works in today's world. But think of it in that way as a short term experiment. And as a mental exercise, think if these 12 weeks are the only thing I get, if the show is going to end after these 12 weeks, what can I do to make these like the best 12 weeks possible? I think breaking it up, again, even if the show is going to go on well past those initial few months, 
I think mentally breaking it up and thinking of it as just a, a limited time task with a deadline, I think that really uh, encourages people. It taps into their most creative selves and it uh, encourages them to think about doing the hard work now and not pushing it off till later. Is there a goal, and this is sort of a question about the business side of, of Bumblecast, but is there a particular client profile, customer profile, however you refer to it as, avatar sometimes, but is there a particular goal you think that you're poised to help people achieve better than others? So maybe somebody coming to you because they want more, I don't know, leads to their business. Maybe they're an author and this is part of a PR play. They got a new book coming out and and this is a play at, at getting more exposure to the book or monetization through ads, advertising, more downloads, more reach, get brand deals. Is there a better set that you align with from your you know 20 plus years of experience? I mean, all of the above. I uh, will help people with any or all of those things. I certainly have already had clients coming to me with any variations on, on those themes. Generally speaking, Bumblecast is we're flexible. We will bend over backwards to fit into your goals and to your, if you have one existing organization, existing brand, things like that. But I do think what separates Bumblecast from other podcasting companies, what really makes us stand out, we have a list of values on our website that I'd encourage everyone to go read, bumblecast.fm, and just click on this little Cyclops icon, click on him to get to the values. My goal with the company is to encourage three things, originality, diversity, and compassion. I think we have seen too little of all of those things in the media generally and in podcasting specifically. So, you know, originality, I love it when someone comes to me with like a really weird idea. I think keep podcasting weird is is one of my values. That's what the Cyclops stands for. And I really want to make sure that as this industry gets more corporatized, as more and more big players realize the value of podcasting, that we don't lose sight of shows that are just completely off the wall, oddball shows. Diversity, We need to do a lot better in terms of making sure that more than just the white male 20, 30 something voices are being heard. This has like become a a joke I've seen on Twitter a couple of times. A group of white men talking about movies is called a podcast, you know, Um, and and so I saw a joke the other day where they said, why do all men instead of going to therapy, start a podcast? Yeah. And the answer to that is podcasting is cheaper. But um, (laughs) but no, like I listen to a lot of those white men talk about movies, podcasts. I love them, but we need more than just them. And compassion, you know, there's certainly a place in the media for folks who are really angry about something, who are yelling, who are demanding, you know, change. I think those things can be good. I think especially now in our very fraught political climate, I think there's certainly a place for anger and for protesting at times. But I also think there's a lot of unnecessary anger, a lot of unnecessary meanness that floats around in the podcasting space. And so those are the facets. Those are the angles from which I try and guide Bumblecast clients. I try and encourage them to lean in that direction. And I think that will benefit the industry at large. I know discussing Joe Rogan in that same sort of thread is polarizing for some, but just from the podcasting industry perspective, what were your thoughts on him being owned or him getting Spotify the rights to to distribute his podcast in sort of that closed sense, right? People are like, oh my God, this is this is sort of going in the opposite direction of the open source culture of of the RSS feeds and the podcasting technology at large. What was your thoughts initially on that Spotify quote unquote acquisition? 
But my first thought was, you know, good for him. Get that money, you know, like Spotify was willing to spend the big bucks. And I feel like from the perspective of if he were just any podcaster, right, good, get get, get the money and uh, keep on making the show that you want to make. Um, I should disclaim that I don't listen to his show, so I'm not super well versed in his specific content. But basically, I see whenever he says something controversial, I see it on Twitter. So that may be an unfair you know, picture of his uh, his show. I just don't have that much time to listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but no, in terms of the larger point, though, about the industry, I think Spotify is where a lot of growth in podcast listeners is going to come from in the next couple of years. They're doing a lot of things right right now where they're pushing podcasts to people who have never listened to them before. They seem to be investing in both the hosting and the advertising side of things with uh, Anchor and Megaphone and those those sorts of things. And I think the the challenge is going to be what are they offering to the listener that really makes it other than just the convenience factor of this is where you already listen to music. I think they need to offer more if they want to win. Now, personally, I don't think we this industry needs a Facebook. I don't think we need one platform to rule them all. That's certainly what Daniel Eck at Spotify wants. But I don't think we as podcast fans need that. I think there can and should still be a place for all these small apps, all the, you know, diffuse apps that people use to listen to podcasts today to continue going on. And this is the question is, as Spotify uses all of its resources to make the experience better for listeners, whatever they choose to do in the future, right, other than just exclusive shows, how are these smaller apps going to compete? And for that matter, what is Apple going to do to respond? What is Amazon going to do? What are the other big giants going to do in response to Spotify? I hope that we're going to see Spotify lifting up the broader pool of of tech companies willing to spend money to buy up shows and to potentially basically give give money to folks other in addition to Joe Rogan, not just him. For the independent podcaster, I don't think, you know, these big tech companies are going to be laying out the red carpet and spending millions of dollars to lure you in. So for the independent creator, it makes the most sense in my mind to continue publishing for as many places as possible. I think the exclusive market only really applies to folks like Joe Rogan, who have those huge followings, right? Who have such a big audience that the gamble is they will follow him anywhere. Yeah. I think the particular, you know, challenge, and I've I've been a podcaster for eight years. A lot of it has been through talking about an open source piece of software called WordPress. So like open source and access and decentralized control and all this stuff is like something that's sort of near and dear to my heart. But when I see these types of things, it's like, yes, one thing about the the Joe Rogan, again, it's not an acquisition. I think it's just licensing the fact that Exclusive they will distribute. licensing deal. Yeah, yeah. Is one, like you said, absolutely. I mean, I mean, whether you agree or disagree with the content a podcaster who's put in time, who's getting paid. That's great for all of us out there as creators looking to live our lives through podcasting. So thumbs up. Second, the flip side of the coin, I should say, is ah, I start to get a little worried when this stuff all starts going to Spotify because the more they attract people who are already listening to music, the more they attract them to then just listen to podcasts, can damage the small creator's opportunity to be found because then you get the, the lazy listener Who's like, oh, I, I can't get your podcast. I'm on Overcast, but I can't get your podcast over. Oh, forget it. <laughs> like, I'm not even going to tune in. And that's the scary, you know, factor. And it's one that I'm always, I'm always keeping tabs on. I agree with that part 100% as well. I just think that so long as there are some alternatives to Spotify, as long as there's some competition, I don't think the, the sky is falling quite yet. 
So at Castos, one of the things that we found a lot through 2020 uh, pushed a lot of people to, and this is sort of in the same vein, private podcasting or premium RSS feed, right? Where somebody has to pay and make some money or charge some money to get access to an RSS feed, right? So you might have a public podcast, like the audience podcast is that we're listening to right now. And then we'll have a private podcast, which we do, you can go to castles.com slash podcast greater. And that is something that we're finding new life in creators coming in saying, oh, I can charge whatever. Castos doesn't take a cut. I can charge whatever and send people to this private feed. Where do you see the industry going with giving power to the creator to monetize their own podcast? This is a long way of getting to when we look at YouTube as a sample, creators used to make quote unquote, tons of money through advertising. And we've seen this constantly get squeezed down to wherever we're at today uh, with what you you can make on an ad. Where do you see it, the industry shifting to give creators that that control to earn whatever it is they want without scooping up all of the, the profits? I've been saying to some of my clients that podcasting and newsletters are the last bastion of middle class media because on YouTube, you know, as you're saying, creators are getting squeezed out and YouTube that's not a portable medium. YouTube is is it for online video, pretty much. I don't think anyone really uses uh, Vimeo the way they use YouTube. I know there has been, like, there's a very small independent video operation called Nebula, which I actually really like. I paid it to support them, but I think it's a very niche operation. So, you know, YouTube is it for video. And then for text, we're seeing more and more, you know, the written word. You basically, if you want to make a living writing in a non-email newsletter environment, you increasingly have to either work for one of these big uh, media companies like the New York Times company, or you have to uh, take a risk and work at one of these outlets that's going to be owned by a private equity firm or a hedge fund or, you know, there's all these uh, local newspapers that have been decimated by big money. So, you know, those things are are extremely difficult for anyone looking to make a living there. Um, I think podcasting, as you mentioned, podcast creators have a lot more control over diverse revenue streams coming in as a result of their show. You can sell ads directly. You can work with a third-party ad platform. You can solicit Patreon donations. You can solicit other direct support. You can, you know, just create a, uh, a tip jar. You can use the podcast to market other products and merchandise and things that you do, right? I think it's really promising that podcasting gives creators a lot more power than they would have if they were trying to make stuff in other media. I'd say the same thing is pretty It's pretty comparable to email newsletters, which we're seeing a boom of right now, where email, because everyone has an email address, it's easier, it's relatively easy to start building a, a following there, at least to get a start there. And podcasting, because there's all these free podcast apps, you don't need to pay to, to, to listen, you can also listen on your web browser, right? Basically, as long as you have an internet connection, and ideally a mobile phone, you can be a podcast listener for free, and you can access a basically infinite amount of high quality content. And so for that reason, you know, I think the barriers to entry for the audience are not exclusive to any one platform, and it's broadly accessible and free to folks. I think that's a great starting place for for a, a creator to reach people and to monetize whatever they want to create. 
we must protect the RSS feed. It's like yeah. something out of a crazy, like Terminator five should just be about protecting the RSS feed. <laughs> like, well, have you so seen there's, there's, it'll probably get shut down by the lawyers in a couple of days, but there's, I just <laughs> saw this thing called spot feed and it's an open source program or this website, this guy made where you put in the Spotify URL for an exclusive show and it turns it into an RSS feed that you can put into any other app. So I just uh, use that. I just tested that <laughs> earlier this morning to subscribe to a show and it's like, Oh, good. This is nice. <laughs> I can get it where I already listen to podcasts. Yeah, you know, and again, like the other thing that is, I guess, alarming, speaking of lawyers and and Spotify and and their acquisition of Anchor, again, these are all competitors to a degree to our own company where they're going to own the platform. You know, we have a lot of people who are starting to wake up and realize that, oh boy, like I'm giving all of this content to Anchor. It's free. It's amazing. Boy, this is is how how cool this is. And then you realize, yeah, one day your podcast uh, has a Doritos commercial halfway through it you're like wait a minute i didn't get i didn't pay the news didn't pay me to put this in here right so there's a lot of people waking up to that ownership of content no real question here but i don't know if you have like a, a feeling of that ownership of the of the content on those types of platforms yeah i mean i haven't personally used anchor um i only know of them by reputation by the fact that they are attracting a lot of independent creators in which for me that's a great value add to the, the industry because um even if they switch providers at some point, right? If you're bringing people in the door, you're getting them interested in making a podcast. I'm supportive of that side of it. And I haven't read the anchor like terms and conditions, so I can't speak to the content ownership or the idea of them inserting ads without a person's consent. But I do think that there's, you know, so I come from the digital media world where for a while I was a reporter working in text mainly. And I saw over the course of the early 2010s, Facebook and Google just eat up more and more and more of the digital media, the ad ecosystem. And I don't think enough people were paying attention to the massive amount of power, economic power and otherwise that they amassed. During that time, we are now seeing only now the fallout of all of that agglomeration of power. But I am generally wary of a comparable player emerging in podcasting. Although, as I said, we're still a long way off. I, th- I think the we're not yet toting in that direction in this industry. I think, it, but it's good to be skeptical. It's good to be wary. If I were, you know, a creator starting out who was in any way wary about that, I, d- I think that's a it's a good call to just be kind of on guard and to read those terms and conditions very, very carefully, including whenever they update them in the future. You know, this is like the, the my favorite thing. I've signed up for so many services over the years. And routinely, like eBay or whatever, will send an email saying, we've updated our terms and conditions. Now, I didn't read the TNC the first time, but th- that, those emails, I'm constantly afraid, like, what, what are they putting in there? Like, yeah. what, 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 what are they changing? Like, yeah. you know, it's not me that I didn't read it the first time, but I feel like I'm, I'm very, um, anything that I am making that I'm hoping to make a living off of, and this applies to any sort of creator, big or small, I do think you need to be extremely careful, read the fine print, read the terms and conditions about wherever you're working with in any capacity, and also read those updates. Yeah. I I mean, like every other day I open up my American Express app on my phone and it's like new updates of terms. I'm like, what's going on here? Like every single day you guys have updated something else. It's crazy. Eric Johnson, this has been an amazing episode. Uh, I should leave it at that. It was just a fast, rapid-paced uh, exploration of your mind in the podcasting landscape. Where can folks fast. find you? <laughs> Where can <laughs> folks find you to say thanks? Uh, they can find me at bumblecast.fm. Uh, you can hire me to help make your podcast better, or I can help you start a podcast from scratch. 
And you can also follow me on Twitter at HeyHeyESJ. Everybody else, it's the Audience Podcast. Don't forget to tune in every single week. Subscribe at castos.com slash subscribe. Thank you.